there was a news story in 2018 that I was hoping to share with you. And finally today, I'm sharing with you because it speaks about the Father's rescue, which is our sermon topic today. So an Australian postal serviceman named Tony Lethbridge knew that early Sunday morning that something must happen to his son Samuel because he's not come home the night before. So the night before, he went out to Newcastle with his friends. He's supposed to come back, uh, but he didn't come back. So when 51 years old, father of three, feared a possible car accident and called the police for a missing person, police, unfortunately, didn't take it seriously, speculating that it's just another case of a runaway teenager or a typical unresponsive, irresponsible 17 years old who might be oversleeping after parting hard. But the father, Tony, had a hunch. That's not the case. So he scrapped all the money he had, and that was $782, and then he hired a tour helicopter for her aerial search. And the helicopter, Pilot Lee Mitchell gave a big discount to this desperate poor father, and they flew together with uh, Tony's brother because Tony was uh, known for uh, air sickness. Then within 15 minutes of a flight, not far from their house, they found the wreckage of uh, Samuel's car 20 yards off the road, and uh, that's exactly the picture of that uh, wreckage. And the pilot said it was a fairly easy to spot from the air, but it wouldn't be nearly impossible to see from the road because it was well below the road level. According to the first responders, if Samuel was discovered a few hours later, he wouldn't be alive. It was lucky that his father hired the helicopter and then spotted him. So what police did not know and could not see the father knew and found a way to rescue his son. That's what we will study in our third study, the Davis final series, King's Tragedy. God knows how to find the lost person. Our God is a master of a rescue. He is an ultimate rescuer. And that God gave us a promise that anyone who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved or rescued. As a good shepherd, God knows not only to find a, a lost sheep, but in today's story, a lost shepherd. So last week, we saw David's secret, perfect crime of a covering up his adultery with a Bathsheba by creating an accidental death of a riot at the battlefield. There we saw the whole thing was displeasing and evil to God. Today we'll see how God confronted David and rescued him from his horrendous evil and awful sin. So here we'll see God's three instruments of a rescue. God's three instruments of a rescue for our own rescue and healing. And these three instruments of God's rescue is also three elements of repentance. So I hope we'll see ourselves in this story today. Today. So how do you, now, let me, let me ask you a question. How do you correct the absolute power? How do you challenge 
absolute power of a king so popular and so successful like David. Up to Samuel chapter 11, David was a courageous, faithful, and righteous. So, for instance, when everyone was afraid of a Goliath, David stepped out with the faith and killed the giant and saved the country. When the king Saul was unjustly persecuting him, he kept his respect for the crazy king and forgave him twice with a reverence for God. And then when he conquered Jerusalem and then made Jerusalem the city of Shalom or peace, his new capital, David brought the ark of God, made Jerusalem a spiritual place rather than successful place. It was more than just a trophy city. It was a, a, a city, to, city that he dedicated to God. So, up to now, David was popular, beloved, trusted, admired by everyone. So how do you confront and correct such an overachieving king like David? As we saw last time, David's adultery, even the murder of Uriah, was nothing to jolt about or jump on or judge in the context of ancient Near Eastern world. Because the ancient Middle Eastern or Near Eastern kings did far more worse than David. You know, those kings of greed and lust and injustice was well tolerated and accepted. So again, how do you confront and correct such a popular and powerful king like David? Today's story in, Luke, uh, in the 2 Samuel chapter, two, chapter 12, verse 1, begins with the word, God sent Nathan. The word sent is the key word in chapter 11 because that's everybody was sending everybody there. So David sent Joab to the you know, war, and David sent his uh, you know, servants to check out the Bathsheba, and the Bathsheba later sent her servant to inform David that I'm pregnant. And then David sent, you know, uh, asked Joab to send Uriah, the Bathsheba's husband, and then David sent Uriah back to the battlefield with a you know, the death warrant letter, and the Joab sent a messenger to David that a uh, mission is accomplished, he's gone, you don't have to worry about it. And David sent a messenger to Joab that, well done, not to worry, you know, move on, let's move on. Everyone is sending everyone. And finally, it's God's turn to send. And God sent this a prophet. So let's read our passage first. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the, the other poor. Rich man had a, many lar a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. He shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did a, such a thing and they had a no pity. 
Do you notice here the first thing that God did to David was not condemning him right away, but actually convicting him with his own verdict. God did not lash out at David saying, do you think I'm stupid? Because I'm silent, do you think I'm a blind too? I saw everything you did, and you're so disgusting. That's not what God said. You know, instead of lashing out, God actually leads David to see his own sin, objectively. For that, God told David a story of a poor man and his little ewe lamb through Nathan. Why did Nathan tell the story of a lamb and his loving shepherd? It's because no one understands the heart of a shepherd better than David, a former shepherd boy from Bethlehem. The parable's image of a rich man cruelly slaughtering the poor man's one little ewe lamb speaks directly to the heart of former shepherd. So in this story, notice the three things here. First, the poor man's home life was very happy, even though he was poor. It was very happy and cozy. Poor man gave his food, drink, and affection to the lamb. And second, the delight and innocent you know, intimacy between a poor man and the little lamb was described in a very personal, intimate way. That he slept in his arm, literally he lied in his arm. And uh, it was very intentional because eat, drink, and lie that he talks about are the three luxuries of the domestic blessings that Uriah refused to enjoy. If you look back to Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 11, when David sent Uriah home to lie down with Bathsheba so he can cover the Bathsheba's pregnancy, what did Uriah say? Uriah said, how could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love or lie with my wife while king's army and my commander Joab is fighting for kingdom? This is a very language that Uriah has chosen to describe as a commitment to king. And then, the ewe lamb, the third one in the, our passage, the verse 3, that was a, like a lamb to the poor, you know, shepherd. Do you remember the meaning of a Bathsheba, the name Bathsheba? What is that? Bathsheba, daughter of a covenant or daughter of an oath. So this cleverly crafted story about rich man and the poor man actually was a targeted at David. And now it arose David's indignation. So David quickly condemned the, the evil rich man and thus himself. With a decisive and the anger, David, the Bible said David burned with the anger and he quickly declared the rich man is guilty, must die. By the way, that sentence is a definitely excessive because that's not what Old Testament says. You know, if you just stole and kill someone else's, you know, ship, you just pay back four times. So David kind of recovered and said, okay, by the way, he has to pay four times. Now, how does prophet correct a king in this story? You know, best way to expose to David's duplicity or hypocrisy is to have him condemn himself with his own response to God's story. 
So here we see the first instrument of uh, God's rescue and the healing. That is an uh, arresting word. Arresting word. God's word has a power to arrest and convict us in our heart. You know, Hebrews 4.12 said this. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and matters. It judges the thought and attitude of a heart. God's word has such a penetrating power in every thought we have and then awakes our conscience and they really speak to us. So in short, Bible has this amazing grappling power on us on each one of us. Now, now, let me illustrate this, you know, uniqueness of God's word. There is, you know, uh, do you guys remember the uh, uh, years ago, well, well, it's been a while, you know, a, a biographical movie about Johnny Carson, Walk the Line? Okay, anyway. You know who Johnny Cash is, right? All right. Anyway, in that movie, I remember seeing that uh, Johnny Cash was talking to his older brother, uh, uh, Jack, and Jack was a good boy. So Johnny, the little Johnny, saw the you know, old, you know, brother reading the Bible on bunk bed, and he said, how come you always read the Bible? And Jack said, I'm going to be pastor, and I got to know the Bible from front to back, and you can't help people unless you got the right story. I don't know, you remember that thing, but... You know, that's kind of, I remember this thing. You can't help people unless you got the right story. I think that's so true. You and I can help ourselves unless we know the right story. And now the question is, why is the Bible is the right story? Why is the Bible is the right story? Karl Barth said, Bible is the right story because the Bible is not man's word about God, but it's a God's word about man. Bible is not a religious book that man imagined, you know, with the imagination they wrote about God, but it's a God's revelation about man. You know, objectively speaking, Bible covers more than history of 1,500 years with uh, more than 40 writers of a diverse background. Yet Bible has a consistent focus and story that communicates God's faithful love to us. And then Charles Spurgeon once said, nobody ever grows a scripture because this book widens and deepens with our years. Is that Bible is growing with you? You know, I've been studying the Bible more than 43 years. And I have to confess that I am more awed by the depth of his truth and the breadth of his beauty. The longer I live, I mean, more than ever, Bible is a fresher and deeper to me. And no book in the world has this kind of arresting and a personal empowerment like a Bible. So those of you who are struggling, whatever your personal issues, you know, I really pray that you focus, you read a Bible and asking God. As, uh, you know, uh, Soren Kierkegaard said, the, uh, when you read a Bible, you have to ask God that uh, you, have to, you have to kind of uh, say to yourself that he's speaking to me, speaking to me, speaking to me. 
You have to claim, God speak to me through the Bible because it has done to the people who really look for God. Uh, let me share my little testimony here. One of the most consistent prayer that I ever done in my life was praying for my older brother's marriage. I pray for that marriage for him every single day for two single day, single day, seven days a week for two years. Why? I'm from South America, and not, not many families sent out their children to the United States to study in college, and my parents were not wealthy at all. But they believe in education, and my older brother, who is all five years older than I, he sacrificed his education for me and my younger sister. So even though I'm grateful to you know, my parents, but I'm doubly grateful to my brother, because do you know any older brother sacrificed a college for you? He did. And the... As I so I promised, so I want to pray for my brother. But when I was thinking about my brother, one thing that really uh, concerned me was that uh, there's not many Asian Americans or Asians in the Venezuela. So where does he find a you know woman to get married? And uh, also, he's not wealthy. He's not even well. He's a high school grad, and uh, knowing that all the Asian or Koreans are snooty about uh, you know education. Who's going to marry this Korean, Venezuelan young man out of nowhere? So I prayed for my brother every single day. Desperately, God, give him a wonderful, loving wife. And then I've been reading the Bible, and the story about Rebecca came to me. Do you know Rebecca? Who came all the way to Canaan to marry Isaac without seeing him? That story jived my situation. I said, I need sister-in-law like uh, Rebecca for my brother. My brother needs somebody who believes in God with a faith can come all the way to Venezuela and marry this great man, good man, and then they can build a family of God together. So I prayed to God that God give a Rebecca to my brother. Give us a Rebecca. I told, you know, everybody in my family, pray for Rebecca. That's our, you know, you know sister-in-law or daughter-in-law. Yeah. And after two years of that desperate prayer, my brother found the Rebecca in South Korea. Details, amazing details, amazing details. My mother prayed for 10 extra, you know, uh, uh, conditions about her future daughter-in-law. Some of them were so selfish. And that I cannot even mention here, you know, like, uh, like uh, almost you know, five and seven, you know, at least height-wise is, uh, you know, five, six. And then college grad, not just any college grad, top premier woman's college grad. And I said, Mom, you're so crazy. You're so selfish. How you, you know, you're shameless. And my mom said, that that's your faith. My faith is different, so I'm going to pray for it. And then at the end, she got everything that she prayed for her daughter-in-law. So on my brother's wedding... Have you seen the younger brother of a groom crying in the wedding? You know, I was crying the whole time with amazing, you know, experience of God's goodness and faithfulness to our prayer. And Bible gives us that kind of encouragement, not only to me, 
You know, those of you who take a Livingstone Bible study, do you guys remember that Jesus being a marginal Jew, Galilean Jew? You know where I get that? From my professor from Princeton Seminary, Sang Yen Lee. Because one day when he realized that he's not, gonna die, he's, gonna, he's not going back to Korea and the buried die and there and the buried with his parents, but he's going to die in America as a first generation, you know, Asian American immigrant, all of a sudden he couldn't, he didn't feel comfortable about that. He didn't like his marginalized, you know, uh, condition as a first generation immigrant. So he began to read a Bible. Even though he's a theologian, he knows the Bible, but he once again began to read the Bible and digging in the gospel, and all of a sudden he realized Jesus was not just a Jew. He was a marginalized Galilean Jew. And there he found God's grace for his marginal Asian-American, first-generation immigrant life and affirmation. You know, Bible is a different book. Let me tell you. You know, this is why the, the Psalm 1 said, the blessed is a man who meditate on God's word day and night with a delight. Who delighted in the meditating God, meditate, meditate God's word. And those of you taken John disciples 1 and 2, what's your, you know, many times, what, what do you find? People usually take a John disciples 1 and 2, they say, Pastor Paul, I didn't know there's so much in there, so little, you know, story. It's all about me. Isn't that true? Bible has a, such an encouragement and empowerment that you will not find it anywhere. When God speaks to you through the Bible, it becomes a promise. It really produces a faith in you that you didn't know that you have. It gives you hope and encouragement. Let me share one more story. There's a professor named uh, Emil Callier. And uh, in his, you know, uh, book, Journey into Light, Emil Callier was a French, and uh, he, was gr he grew up in the very non-religious, naturalistic, you know, environment. And uh, he didn't see Bible until he was uh, 23 years old. And then, you know, when he was uh, 19, he uh, served the French army during the World War I in the very dangerous, lonely Fox Hall. One evening, he had this idea that, he has a strange longing in his heart that uh, I wish there is a book that understands me. But of course, there is no book that understands him. So he decided to write a one book that would understand him. How? He is a you know, reader of literature and philosophy. So any great book that he read and whatever passage in that book really touches his heart, he began to write all the, you know, uh, the, the quotation with, uh, you know, whatever context of that. So he actually bought a big leather-bound notebook. He said, I'm going to write all the wonderful books, you know, uh, quote that really blessed me at the end. This will be the book that would understand me, okay? And then, finally, at the age of 23, he finished that book. When he wrote the last page, he was so excited. So I finally finished the book that would understand me. So he went out in the countryside, and he began to read his, uh, you know, book that he made for himself in the last four years. And this is what he said. At the end, 
instead of strength, instead of uh, uh, comfort and uh, confirmation, I found only disappointment. Instead of insight, I found this emptiness. It was an ex existential crisis. The book that he thought would understand him after four years would not understand him. He has a huge disappointment. So he came home. And then by providence of God, his wife, the Irish woman that he met during his recovery, she brought a French Bible, French New Testament. On that day, she received, she, some uh, priest, a town priest gave that book as a gift even though she refused because her husband said, I'm going to raise a non-religious family, so don't bring anything, especially Bible. We are Bible-free home. So when he returned home, his wife was waiting for him at the front and said, I, you know, apologetically, I didn't buy this book. A priest insists me to have. So he said, that's the Bible. Let me have it. And he took the Bible. He ran into his study. He began to read. He chanced upon the beatitude. Let me read again. He said, I read and read and read, now aloud with the indescribable warmth surging within. I could not find the words to express my awe and wonder, and suddenly the realization dawned upon me. This is a book that would understand me. This is a book that would understand me. And that's how he came to know Christ. And then he later became a professor at UPenn, you know, Script College, and ended up teaching Christian philosophy at Princeton Seminary. Now, you know, when people complain about the silent God, I want to make sure whether your Bible is open. You can complain about silent God with a closed Bible. It's like a complaining that you are not getting any text message because your phone is turned off. You know, when you open your Bible, open your heart and ask God to speak to me, and God speaks to me. That's my experience. So today, first thing that we learn from David's recovery or God's rescue of David is this. God arrested David with his story. In that story, David found himself. And with that, you know, the objective identification, David now realized what he has done. Okay? Now let's go to the second instrument. Second instrument is audacious warner. Look at the verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, you're the man. In Hebrew, just the two words, you the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel said. I anoint you king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wife into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah and all this had been too little. I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of Ammonite. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took his, the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And this is what the law says. Out of your own household, 
I am going to bring calamity on, on you, and before your very eyes, I'll take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. What you did in secret, I'll do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Soon as he pointed out, David, you are the rich man. And then Nathan confronted David with a formal pronouncement of a well-known prophetic statement, I mean phrase, thus says the Lord, God of Israel. And there, David actually pointed out two things. He said, what you did was to God. It's not to Uriah or Bathsheba. You did that to God. You know, the verse 7 and 8, he said that I, you know, he quoted God as, I gave you, I blessed you, I honored you. The I is the uh, emphatic word here. And God said, I am the giver of everything you enjoy, and I would have given you more had you asked. Ask, ask. So David's sin was a totally inexcusable because he did it to gracious, generous God who loved him, honored him, and blessed him more than anybody. On that note, we need to recognize that our sin and disobedience is the same irrational and inexcusable like David's sin because we have same God. God who loved David is same God who loves us. Amen? So when we disobey and when we commit the sin, you know, it is irrational. You know? And the second thing to notice here is the word despise. Repeated twice in verse 9 and 10. You know, this is actually a strong word because the beginning of 1 Samuel 3, chapter, chapter 2, you know, God said, anybody who honor me, I will, be on, I will honor. Anybody despise me will be disdained. That was a God's judgment pronouncement to house of Eli. And then with that, Elijah's family was, was punished. And now the same word that David, you despise me, came, to, came today. Now, I want to think about, about Nathan's courage here today. Once again, Nathan's courage was very remarkable. Because why? Do you think Nathan was the only one who knew about David's adultery and the murder? What about the David's servant who went to fetch you know, Bathsheba? What about the Bathsheba's servant who sent a message to David that, uh, you know, Bathsheba is pregnant? You know? What about the Joab's, you know, Joab? There were many. There were many. Actually, several people knew the David's adultery and even murder. But why they were silent? Obviously, they didn't want to risk their lives. They want to protect their own well-being more than David's walk with God. Nathan was a different. Nathan risked his life to confront and condemn David because Nathan care for David is bigger than his care for his own life. What if David said, I don't know what you're talking about. Take that guy out. End of the game. But Nathan confronted David. But in this story, we see two diametrically opposite people near David. So one was a Joab, and the other one is a Nathan. 
And I want you to contrast them because Joab was a commander-in-chief and Nathan was his pastor and the prophet. When David was in spiritual crisis, you know, Joab actually saw David's spiritual crisis as his opportunity to make himself valuable to David again. You know, I sometimes wonder, what would happen if Joab said to David, so first secret order to kill Uriah, that what crazy order is this? I will not kill my, you know, faithful sub, you know, captain like Uriah. What if Joab rejected? What would David do? David has probably said, okay, now I have to confess. Or, you know, something. But instead, you know what Joab did? Joab saw Uriah as expendable for his own reason and self-interest. He saw death of Uriah as a ticket to get back to David's inner circle. And uh, let me tell you what happened. Earlier in the story, Joab killed Abner, former commander-in-chief of Saul's army, who came to David to surrender. And then David was about to take, uh, you know, uh, Abner into his own army. And to Joab, Abner is a rival. So behind David's back, Joab assassinated Abner. And since then, David lost his trust to Joab, and their relationship was not as good as before. So today, when Joab received David's you know, secret order, it was he found it as a, as a chance to regain the lost trust of his king and to reposition himself as a king's confidant. I'm, I'm going to help you. You owe me one. You know, you owe me biggie. Don't ever forget. That's what Joab did. In one word, Joab was opportunist. Whereas Nathan was obedient to God. Nathan cared about God's glory and honor in David's life more than David's status quo or any benefit that he received from David's status quo. You know, uh, Oprah Winfrey one time said this, Lots of people want to ride with you in the limo, but the, what you want is someone who will take a bus with you when limo is broken. I think it's a great American wisdom, right? You know, Joab wanted to ride in David's royal limo of a power and prestige, whereas Nathan wanted to take a David in God's bus of humility and repentance. So let me ask this question. Are you Joab or are you Nathan to your friends? Are you Joab or are you Nathan? Or do you have a Nathan in your life? Do you have a, someone who believes you and someone wants to see glory of God in your life? Someone who loves you so much and enough to confront you. I hope you have a Nathan in your life. I really pray that for us to regrow this kind of a friendship. You know, I pray that we build not just a friendship of occasional, you know, uh, uh, entertainment and the convenience, but real friendship of audacious care and mutual commitment. Friends that can, we can count on 
and friends will show us our blind spot. Friends that we really plead our commitment to God. So Friday House Church, you know, we all try to create a, this a safe environment where we can share our, you know, uh, our confessions and the failures and the comeback. I hope that we don't just hear each other's confession. That's very important. But we also pray for each other. So coming week comes, we can really ask, how was it? I pray for you. Are you still struggling? Let us not be just, you know, run it as a program. Let's make it as a true spiritual commitment. Now let let us see the final conclusion and the final instrument of God's rescue. That is affliction of a wheeze. Those of you who don't know what we is, we is a Scottish word for baby or the small. So verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have a sin against the Lord. David finally confesses sin. And we will reflect on his confession and repentance next week. And then Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin and you are not going to die. But because of doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David. He became ill. You know, most astounding word in this chapter that David heard is this. That the Lord has taken away your sin and you will not die. That's the most actually amazing things here. This is a scandal of God's grace. This is, a, you know, how in the world that God take away the sin of David. You know, as if David has some kind of excuse. And we know David has no excuse. And amazing thing is that even though David failed big, God did not forsake him. God did not forsake him. You know, God didn't say to David that I thought I, have a poten- I saw potentially new. I thought you are better than Saul. I was wrong. You are worse than Saul. Saul didn't do this, what you did. You lose, you, you, you know, you despicable, you know, guy, you know, ungrateful, you know, whatever. Get out of my sight. That's not what God said. What did God say? Even though you failed, I'll forgive you. And I will extend my forgiveness and continue to be faithful to you. This God's forgiveness actually came from his promise of a faithfulness that he made to David in 2 Samuel 7. Last summer, when I preached on the second series on David, King's you know, triumphs, do you guys remember, those of you here, what was the 2 Samuel 7? Why is the most important, you know, passage in the Old Testament, one of the top important passages in the Old Testament is talking about Davidic covenant. That God will usher God's kingdom through the descendant of David. Messiah will come from there. And there, 2 Samuel 7, 14, God said this, I'll be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by man, with a flogging inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. 
So God said, even though Saul was rejected, you will not be rejected. I will continue to love you and lead you, but in this case, what? God will discipline him. So taking away David's sin means that he will not bear the penalty that he deserved, but also it means David's sin has a consequence. And that consequence is that his son will die. And all the things he has done will create the other you know, consequences, which we will see in the coming chapter 13 to 21. Now, the child death is a result of a David's sin, but this is not the same as a punishment. It is a fundamental principle of life that God may forgive us and cleanse, cleanse us from all wrongdoing, but that doesn't mean that we don't suffer from consequences of our sin. Actually, consequences of sin still remain. And sometimes the innocent suffers for crimes committed by someone else. And such suffering is not a punishment for the innocent people, but it was a consequence. You know, one good example would be a crack baby may die soon after birth because a mother used a cocaine during the you know, pregnancy. Child dies. The mother lives. Child death is not a punishment, but the consequence of a mother's sin. We need to know when God pronounced that your son born to you will die, there is a difference between judgment for sin and judgment by sin. God forgave David's sin, but God would not shield him from every consequence of the sin. David had to face the consequence of sin. And uh, David's actually, today in this story, one of the few saving graces is this. This is the last time we see David's uh, sexual misconduct. After, you know, after the Bathsheba's affair, we don't see anymore. They be fooling around with a woman. And now, also there is an actual saving grace, in my opinion, the death of a, death, their first child. Because imagine, if you are the child, you're growing up with a stigma. You are the product of an illegitimate relationship. You are the cause of an innocent man who could be your own biological father, at least a half. Imagine the stigma and pain the child, shame the child has to grow up. But as I said before, this consequence of sin, David has to bear. And the affliction of these you know, innocent people, that should awake us to the reality that when, you know, reality that we are Americans, especially these days, deny. Americans are so individualistic, we simply think that I did something wrong, I just, you know, pay the price, that's it. No, it, it's not it. Somebody else pay for your sin and the, your own selfishness. We are so interconnected. We heard the uh, victims of, uh, innocent victims of uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, crimes and, uh, you know, shooting. Now do you still say that uh, it's all individual? Individual sin affects the community. My sin affects you. 
vice versa, your sin affects me. And by the same token, I want to say this. Last week, I talked about collateral blessings, not just collateral damages. My faithfulness, God, can also bless other people. So this is, you know, what I'm praying. You know, Sarah prayed at the beginning that forest is growing. I'm not sure whether, whether we are really growing. Maybe size-wise a little bit. But I'm not sure whether we are really growing. You know, the growth that I see is a prayer and humility and care for one another. And the big, just three weeks ago, I, I learned about, uh, you know, do not succumb to this uh, summer virus called the vacational mentality. You know, I think our tendency is dipping again. All right? I've ministered to different cities in the country. Let me tell you, forest is very bad in terms of... Uh, you know, Texans, maybe we are, I, I don't know whether other churches in Texas, this is a common, you know. Our Sunday attendance is not that good. Yeah, so, you know, that's my objective of evaluation of you. Yeah. I'm not, once again, I'm not against the people taking a vacation, going vacation by all means, but do not go out every single time you have a chance. What we do here matters. You know, we welcome one another, welcome newcomers, VIPs. This all matters. I think, you know, we, this is our seventh year. So we shouldn't be deceive ourselves that because of a little bit of a numerical growth, we think we're doing well. I don't think so. Do you pray more than before? Are you more excited about the scripture than before? Every time we sign up for the Good Shepherd College, I have to feel like pulling the teeth. Is it pulling the teeth or pulling the leg? I don't know, whichever. I feel like I become a torturer. And I once again compare Forest to the, my previous churches. There, people sign up. Here, I have to say, did you sign up? Did you sign up? Sign up. Let me end the story. Every redemptive story in the Bible, I said there is always a missing piece shaped of a cross, you know, cross of Christ. Who ultimately paid the price in this story? Who is the ewe lamb, the slaughter? John chapter 1 said, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, first time he said, there is a Lamb of God who takes away sin of the world upon his shoulder. Who is this innocent baby? You know, suffer the consequence of David's sin. What about the Son of God? Son of David. We call the Son of David. The true Son of David who died for all of us. Dear brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, what we have is amazing. God loves us. And with that God's undying love, we can do so much. We can encourage one another. We can repent better than before. And we can truly, truly bring a new creation in our community, in our church. Let's pray.